Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Philippians chapter 1, the first chapter in the book of Philippians is uh, where we're going to be. And to kind of hold your spot there, we're going to move through a few passages of Scripture, but Philippians 1 is going to be the main spot of where we're going to be. So just hold your spot there, Philippians 1. Hey, let me also, before we get started with the message today, give you a little bit of a preview of uh, where we're headed uh, beginning in June, the first Sunday in the month of June, June 2nd. Uh, we're going to start a brand new series uh, that is called Burning Questions. Now, how many of you have uh, remembered any of the Burning Questions series I've done in the past? All right, some of you. Typically, we've done these two different times through the years, and I uh, just felt compelled to do it again through the summer and uh, for June and July, primarily. And what we do is we just sort of pick out a topic and uh, for the Burning Questions series, and we focus on that topic during that message series. And uh, we just sort of keep the questions to that specific topic. But this is where you get to get to play a part, right? You get to have a part in the messages every Sunday. It doesn't mean we give you the mic and you get to necessarily come up here and preach for five minutes at a time or so, but you get to give some input. And so what we're doing is we're fielding questions, burning questions on the topic specifically of Christianity, right? That is a wide, broad topic. And, uh, and so we need you to, uh, to turn in the questions for that. So think of this burning question. Some of you may have burning questions about different things. And, uh, if someone were to ask for questions, you would never raise your hand because you don't want your name attached to that question. You don't want to be put on the spot when you ask that question, and yet it burns in your mind and in your heart, and you wish you had an answer. So this series, Burning Questions, is dealing with Christianity. You get to ask the questions, and you ask them anonymously. And so don't put your name on it at all. You have different ways that you can ask those questions. One is out in the lobby. Even today, we've got a box out there. We've got cards where you can just fill out your question. Don't put your name on it. Drop it in the box. And, uh, or you can go to our website or our uh, church app, if you've got that on your phone already, uh, and you can find the Burning Questions logo there, and you can find a way to submit your questions anonymously. Uh, we haven't even gone live with this yet until today, but we did put it on uh, our Facebook and on our church app. We've already got questions coming in, some really good questions too uh, as well. And so we're going to be putting those together. What I'll do is each Sunday, I will look to cover one, two, three, just however many of the most prominent questions, the ones that are asked often, the ones that are most pertinent, right? And just the ones I feel compelled to deal with for that particular Sunday. And we're hoping for over 50 questions and uh, really hope you come through with it. So here's one other thing that you can do also. We've got little cards like this. You see these. They're not very, not very big. They're out there at the Burning Questions table in the lobby as well. And uh, these are designed for you to take a, a few of those, put them in your purse or carry them around with you. And uh, what you can do is you can just ask other people to ask their burning questions about the topic of Christianity as well. There's a QR code on the back. They can scan it on their smartphone. They can submit the question, type it in, submit it, all be done with it in about two minutes or less. And, uh, and maybe even have their question dealt with in a, in a message during that particular series starting the first Sunday in June. So here's what you can do. You can go to work tomorrow, grab some of these, and to work tomorrow, you can just say, hey, listen, blame it on me. Say, our, our uh, crazy pastor who doesn't have it all together necessarily, he is asking. You can even say, I'm demanding. All right, I demand that you do this. Right there. So there, it makes it legitimate. So you can say, he's demanding that we uh, just ask folks to turn in their burning questions questions that have been bouncing around their hearts and minds uh, about the topic of Christianity, they can scan it, submit it, their name will never be attached to it, and we just may deal with it, okay? So we're going to have a good time through the summer. Uh, every message will kind of stand alone. It's not a series where if you miss a Sunday, then you're kind of behind. Uh, it's not that at all. A lot of, most everybody here is probably going to be out at least one Sunday for travel through the course of the summer. And you can just catch that message you missed online, slide right back in the next time you're here on a Sunday. And uh, I'm excited about it. This is, 
This is a lot of work, man. When I do these series, there are some super hard questions. And uh, the good thing is the Bible gives a ton of insight. And uh, so we're going to do our best with it, see what God does as a result. So help me with it. Be a part of it. We'd love to get 50 or more questions, and you can do that even starting today. All right, so Philippians chapter 1 is where we are today, looking at a message, not a part of a series, just stands alone for this day specifically. And uh, looking at, uh, again, this particular verse, one verse we're going to focus on specifically in Philippians 1, and, and a promise that God makes to us. And then we're going to look towards the end of the New Testament at an example that God gives us. This is the cool part of where we see that promise fulfilled and how it gets played out in a person's life, which only gives hope for us that God's going to do the same thing in our lives that he does for this person. So we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. We'll still look to get you out of here on time, but man, I hope God uses this because the promise we're going to look at is just amazing, and uh, the example of it is not too shabby either. So I think it's going to be a great, great time together this morning. So let me ask a question to kick things off. Have you ever come to that time in your life where you have said to yourself, probably not to anyone else, but you've said to yourself, I don't think I'm ever going to change. Have you ever come to that place, and it's usually not a good thing? It's usually not we look in the mirror, right, and you say, man, I'm so beautiful. I'm so handsome. I am never going to change, right? It's never for a good reason we ask that question. It's not like you look at your skill set, or the boss comes to you at work and says, you know what, you're the best worker we have ever had. Our company is infinitely stronger because of you. And, and, and you look at the boss and say, you know what, boss, good news is coming. I am never going to change, right? It's not a good reason we say that to ourselves. It's usually because of something negative or difficult or hurtful that we look at ourselves and we say, I am never going to change. Maybe it's that one temptation that we keep coming back, can't quite walk away over and over, and we give in to it, and we've tried to put it down, but can't quite walk away, and, and, and there's a point of discouragement where you say, I don't think I'm ever going to change. Or it's that part of your heart that hurts so badly because someone hurt you or wronged you or did something to you behind your back. And you, you've tried to forgive them. You've tried to let it go. You've, you, you've tried to put it in the past, but you just can't do it. And, and finally, you like throw up your, your hands and, and you just almost give up and say, you know what? I am never going to change. I'm never going to be able to let go. I'm never going to be able to walk away. I'm never going to be able to, to, to forget this right? I'm never going to change. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a perspective you have. Maybe it's something that, that you continually come back to over and over and over and over. And, and, and there's a part of you that says, I'm, I'm not ever going to be able to move beyond this. But for you, maybe it's a, as a mom. Maybe, maybe for you, 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 you don't see the hundreds and the thousands of the things you do really well and that you do so right. You, you only see those couple of things that that you've tried to do better and you just can't quite get over the hurdle, and that's where you're fixated. It's not all the other good stuff. It's that couple of things that you've tried to change and you can't change them, and and in exasperation you just say, you know what, I'm never going to change. Or maybe you're a new believer and you you came to that place in your life where there was radical change in in a lot of ways. I mean, you gave your life to Jesus and you heard the gospel and you trusted him, and, and in so many ways you're a different person than you used to be back then. But man, you didn't know it was going to be hard. You didn't know it was going to be difficult. You didn't know that, that, that you had so far to go to be like Christ. 
You thought it would, boom, happen in an instant, and it hasn't happened in an instant. Yes, you were saved in an instant, but you're still, you're still a lot more like the old you than you are like Jesus. And you look at a couple of those areas and you think, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to change. And you get discouraged and you get down and you get a little bit irritated and exasperated and frustrated. Or maybe you're just an ordinary person. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you're just thinking about what it means to live in a relationship with God. And yet you, like the rest of us, have areas in life where you just haven't arrived. And you're, you're just sick and tired of it enough to where it hurts to admit to yourself, maybe, maybe I'm never going to change. You know, it's interesting because when we look in Scripture, we see, as I mentioned earlier, an awesome promise that God makes to us. And this promise here is in the context of a letter that was written, and I'll share a little bit more about that in just a moment. But even though the promise was written 2,000 years ago to a certain group of people, that promise still jumps off the page and it drops down right into the midst of our lives as well. See, the promise doesn't come with an expiration date. God didn't give a promise in Scripture and say, okay, this promise expires at the end of the first century. No, when he gave the promise, it was applicable in that particular setting, but the expiration date doesn't exist. And so God's promise still applies to every single one of us who also have a relationship with Jesus. And when we read here in this promise, we're going to find that not only does it apply to us, but we're going to be able to have the same experience as the example we're going to look at at the close of the New Testament and at the close of this message as well. So let me give you a little bit of a context that we're going to jump in. The book we're looking at is, is the book of Philippians. Now, some of you may be very new to uh, a relationship with God. You may be very new to church or to the Christian faith. Maybe for some of you, you've never really read the Bible much at all. Maybe you come out of a background where someone else, a professional, read it for you and, and you never really needed to read the Bible, you didn't think. Maybe you were even discouraged from reading it yourself. You were told maybe let the professionals do that for you. So this book may be brand new for you. And you may look at it and think, oh my gracious, I mean, this is a huge book. I mean, if you've got a study Bible, it's even huger, right? It's even bigger. I mean, you got not only the Bible, but you got the notes and you got maps and all this little tiny print and stuff in the back. I mean, it's just so intimidating. Well, well, here's the thing. This is one book and we call it a book, the Bible, but it's also 66 smaller books that make it this one big book we call the Bible. And some of those books that we, that we refer to are actual letters that were written. And the book of Philippians is one of those. And so this, this book we're about to read in Philippians is an actual letter penned by an actual man to an actual group of people, in this case a church, and yet God was behind all of it. The Holy Spirit inspired the writer of this letter. His name was Paul. And, uh, and when he wrote it, God just directed him to write exactly what God wanted to the point to where we say this is God's word. So without error, we can trust it. We can build our lives around it. And so Paul is writing here to this group of people called the Philippians. Now, Paul knew what it was like to be one person and then to be radically changed because he had given his life to Jesus in very radical fashion. God had flipped his life 180 degrees. He was a different person than he used to be. And so when Paul writes this letter, he's writing it to a group of Christians in a city called Philippi. Now, Philippi, 2,000 years ago, was a Roman colony. Remember, the context here a little bit of basic history, is that the, we're, we're dealing with the Roman Empire. This is the setting of the bulk of the New Testament is the Roman Empire. 
And so Philippi was a Roman colony, and it was, it, it was, it was a, not a large city necessarily, but it was like having a little mini Rome right there uh, in their midst. As a Roman colony, they were set up much like the city of Rome. As a Roman colony, they would have had much of the governmental structure as Rome. It would have been like living in Rome, but you're in the city of Philippi. And so that particular city had a certain religion. It was called emperor worship. <laughs> and whoever the emperor was, Caesar, right, that's who they worshiped. And if you ever forgot that, well, there were plenty of monuments around the city that would have his name up there reminding you that the view was that Caesar was divine. Caesar was worthy of worship. That was the Paul shows up there. The book of Acts captures that for us. And when he comes there, he teaches and he preaches out of the Old Testament and he shares about Jesus. And there are people who place their faith in Jesus. They come to Christ. They're saved, right? Their lives are changed. They are now in a brand new relationship with God. And out of this small pocket of people, a church begins to build. Reminds me of when our teams go to the Philippines. And when they go to the Philippines, many times they'll go to a brand new region that, that a team has never gone to before. And they'll go, they may give out gifts, or they'll, they'll um, do something to serve people in that particular village or that particular community or barangay. And, and there'll be some that will place their faith in Christ. And before long, that team leaves, and the Filipino folks kind of move in there, and they help to train and equip, and they lead Bible studies in yards, under palm trees, and in homes. And, and eventually, a church forms. And there's a living, breathing body of Christ right there in that village that didn't exist before. And that's what happened in Philippi. Well, you can imagine how hard it must have been for the people in Philippi living out their faith in that city. Because when you exchange one king, Caesar, for a new one, Jesus, and you exchange one kingdom, the Roman Empire, for another kingdom, the kingdom of God, you can imagine how difficult that must have been to live out their faith in the public arena. And no doubt there were instances where they would become frustrated and they would become exasperated over how far they had to go to be like Christ. And no doubt they would throw up their hands at times and say, you know what, I'm never going to make it. The task is too great. I'm too unlike Jesus to make any difference in this world. And I'm never going to change. So Paul writes them this letter. And he writes it from prison. He's in prison because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And he's in prison because enemies of the gospel exist who put him there. He shares a little bit about that in chapter 1, verse 12. Look at what he says here. He's speaking about his imprisonment. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, he says to the Philippian Christians, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Wait a minute, Paul. I thought you told me you were in prison. Yep. And the gospel is just exploding because of that. Verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now, let's just pause there for a second. Um, if this was most of us, right, we would be lamenting while we were chained to some smelly guard or to a wall for the sake of our own obedience, right? 
And we would have been just complaining and moaning. And it's like, I can't believe that I'm stuck in Paul's attitude. I mean, Paul was like in a whole different world. His perspective was, you know what? I'm chained to a wall here, and I'm writing this letter with my other hand. And let me just tell you, man, it has never been better. It is going awesome because even the guards who guard me and the people who work in this prison, man, they are coming to Jesus, and the gospel is progressing, and, and people are just being touched left and right. It is actually a good thing that I'm locked up here. Now, that, that's his perspective. You ever work with somebody like that? Do you have somebody like that in your family? All right, has that kind of an attitude? That was Paul's attitude. It was just amazing. And so he writes these Philippians this letter, and he encourages them that in the midst of their circumstance, where they live in a fallen world, and listen, where they sometimes are reminded that they have a long way to go to be like Jesus themselves, he pins to them one verse that is so incredibly powerful. And so let's work towards that verse, jumping in, chapter 1, verse 1, and let's see what it says. So Paul writes, and he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to pause right there for just a second before I finish that verse. Paul, if you, you can do this on your own sometime. In many of the letters that Paul writes, he'll say grace and peace to you up in the beginning part, kind of the greeting, grace and peace to you. It's always in that order, grace and peace. I've actually gone through many of his letters and just looked, and I think all but one or two have that greeting. It's never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace to you, which is interesting because you can't have peace in your life with God, right? You can't have peace at all unless we first have been touched by the grace of God. And so Paul says grace and peace to you. It's, a, it's a, his, his basic greeting that he would give to many of the churches that he would write to. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy. Uh, again, Paul, sorry, aren't you locked up? Yes, I'm, I'm in prison. Offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. These believers in Philippi likely would not have been huge in number, not a large church like we think of churches today. And yet they were so incredibly uh, supportive of Paul's ministry, and they were a part of Paul's ministry to where Paul had such an affinity and a closeness to them. Which leads us to the verse I want us to focus on this morning, the next verse, verse 6. And he says to them, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I am confident. I am 100% sure. There are very few things in this world that we are willing to give that kind of backing to, right? I am confident of this. Now, somebody might have told you that before and got you in trouble, <laughs> right? Or got you, you know, suspended or, or got you, you know, put out of the house or got you arrested or whatever. Like, hey, I promise you this is going to work out. You know, and you trust him. It didn't work out, right? God says, I am, or Paul says, I am 100% sure. I promise you, I am confident of this very thing that he, capital H, God, who began a good work in you. What's he looking at here? He's looking at the day they gave their lives to Jesus. Of, of a Savior, I day when you bowed and you said, Lord Jesus, I am in need of a, of, of a Savior. I am a sinner, and it's a day best I can. I lay aside my sin that's kept me from you for far too long, and I invite you to come in and forgive me and take over. Then the day you did that, man, he started an amazingly good work in you. That you went from dead 
to alive on the inside. That you went from guilty to forgiven. You went from sinner to saint. Everything changed for you. God, Paul says, the day that he started that good work in you, that he is ultimately going to perfect it. He will complete it. He will finish it. He will continue to work it out in your life until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day he calls you home. (laughs) You know, the problem with this verse is that a lot of us have been in church for so long, and a lot of us have read this Bible so many times that we read a verse like that, and we just fly right past it. And I wish that I could be in a room with a hundred people that hurt in the midst of their faith in Jesus who've never even heard that this verse exists and to hear it for the very first time. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me that the God who started that good thing back there in my life, when I gave my life to Jesus, you mean he hasn't forgotten me? No, he hasn't forgotten you. Do you mean that the God who started something good in me when I prayed and gave my life to Christ, do you mean that he hasn't turned and walked away from me? No, he hasn't. Do you mean the the God who saved me, even though I feel like I'm never going to change in some areas, I'm never going to put away the forgiveness, I'm never going to be done with this temptation, I'm never going to be able to walk out of this sin, I'm never going to be able to fill in the blank. You mean that he's going to continue to work in me, that I'm a work in progress, and he's not going to give up on me, and he's not going to walk away from me, that he's going to continue to work and to mold and to shape and to knock off the rough edges all the way through till he calls me home? That's exactly what I'm saying. And it's a promise that he makes to us in the midst of of a fallen world. He says, I promise you, I promise you that I will continue to work. There is an assumption in your life, but I think there is a... I think there is an assumption wrapped up there, and that assumption is that we will let him. So here's the takeaway. Here's the principle. And I hope you'll jot this down, that we become like Jesus by God's grace, not because of our works. You're not going to be more like Jesus because you work hard enough. We become like Jesus by God's grace through our relationship with him, through the work of the Holy Spirit in us who molds and shapes and changes us, produces fruit in us. But we have to be willing. We can't just sit in a corner and blame God because we're the same way we used to be. Because after all, I thought God's supposed to come and change me. It's almost like the master craftsman in the workshop has the anvil. And on that anvil, he takes a piece of steel and he heats it and he puts it on the anvil and he hammers it and he puts it in the, ste- in, in the fire and he puts it back on the anvil and he hammers it and he holds it up and he looks at it and he puts it back in the fire and he sets it on the anvil and he hammers it and he bends it and he molds it and that process goes on and on and on. And in the hands of that craftsman, let's just say through the willingness of the steel to be molded, he produces a masterpiece over time. And it's much the same picture. That as we come to those areas of our lives where we feel like, you know what, I'm going to be stuck here my whole life. I'm never going to change this attitude. I'm never going to change this action. I'm never going to be able to move past this hurdle in my life. I'm never going to change. God says, I am changing you if you just let me. (laughs) God finishes what he starts. Probably in this place, there are good starters and there are good finishers, right? Around your house, there are some projects that you've started. You haven't quite finished yet, 
right? It's been a couple years, hadn't quite finished it. I hate to go there because my wife's here. My kids are here. I got a wall in my oldest daughter's bedroom that shows that there's still a work in progress that I'm working on. A few other things as well. Here's the thing. God finishes what he begins. I don't know how it all unpacked. I'm not smart enough to dig this deeply into the mind of God. But there was a point where time began. God without beginning or end, eternal, said now's the time for me to create. Day one, two, three, four, five, six. He began this amazing work of creation that put into place everything we see with our eyes and hear with our ears. And on day seven, he rested. Why? Because he finished what he started. Maybe there was a conversation in heaven before Jesus, the Messiah, left and came to this earth to be born of a virgin named Mary. And if there was a conversation in heaven where he said, now's the time and the plan enacted, you can almost imagine the conversation saying, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to go rescue my creation. And everyone who turns from their sin and places their faith in me, I'm going to receive them and forgive them and cleanse them and change them and save them and keep them for all of eternity. Now's the time for me to go. And he came, born of a virgin, placed in a manger, such an unassuming Savior, right? And he lived his life in perfection for 33 years, and ultimately he died on a cross and he rose again from the dead and and, and ascended back to the Father. And when he died on the cross, just before his last breath, what did he say? He didn't say, I am finished, and he didn't say, this is still in progress. He said, it is finished. And what he came to do, he accomplished. Why would he then not hold up to the same promise that he makes in Philippians 1.6, that if he started a good work in you the moment you gave your life to Christ, why would he not continue that and mold and shape you along the way, turning you into the image of Christ as you go? But you got to trust him and you got to submit to him. So moms, the question isn't aren't are you going to make it the question is are you submitted to him struggler (laughs) maybe over circumstances or some sin that's in your life that you can't shake the question isn't am i going to make it am i ever going to change the question is are you submitted to him you know there's an awesome picture at the close of the new testament that helps us to see that god keeps his promise and it's in the life of a guy named John. Turn with me to the book of 1 John, if you will. Just kind of hold your spot there. And uh, you can turn anywhere in 1 John. There's five chapters. Just pick one. Camp there. Because we're going to pull out a few verses from a couple of different chapters in 1 John. 1 John, right towards the end of your Bible. Very, very short passage of our, our um, book of Scripture. Just five chapters long. 1 John, go ahead and turn there. And I want to give you a little backstory about this letter that we're about to read by this guy named John. John was a, he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Christ, one of the original 12. The first disciple of Jesus to die would have been who? Judas Iscariot, right? Took himself out. The last disciple of the 12 to die most likely would have been John. He would have died in old age, exiled because of his faith. I consider him a martyr. He died in a place and in a way that he would not have desired, right? Exiled because of his faith on an island called Patmos. He would have been elderly at the time when that came. 
And before he died, he penned the words to the book of Revelation, and then also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John was the brother of another disciple named James. And these two brothers had been given a nickname in the original language. It was Boanerges, which translates son of thunder. In that case, the two of them, sons of thunder. So that was his nickname. He was a son of thunder. Now imagine you go to work tomorrow and there's a new guy in the office and you put your hand out and say, hey, I'm Brooks. Good to meet you. I work here. You new? Yeah. Hey, what's your name? Just call me son of thunder, right? (laughs) You're probably not going to be thinking, wow, I bet this guy loves puppies and long walks on the beach and I bet he's just kind and gentle, right? No, you're not thinking. You're going to be like, Good to meet you, son of thunder. <laughs> you know, I'll be working at another place now starting next week. You know, I don't want anything to do with you. And that's exactly what that reflected. I mean, John, uh, he was given that nickname, he and his brother James, for a reason. One of the reasons we see here, you don't have to turn there, uh, but you can read along with me on the overhead. It, it comes out of Luke chapter 9, and the gospel writer Luke captures a true story, a picture of an event that happened in Jesus' ministry that John was a part of. And so let's bring that up, Luke chapter 9, and let's just kind of unpack a little what happened here. We get to see why John's nickname was a son of thunder. So it says, when the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, for his ascension, right, after his crucifixion and resurrection, and he'd go back to the Father, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Let me pause there for a second. When, often when Jesus wanted to go back to Jerusalem, the disciples weren't always in favor of that. Because the enemies were in Jerusalem. That's where the uh, religious leaders were that ultimately wanted Jesus crucified. And so whenever there was talk of going back to Jerusalem, the disciples, eh, not so much into this. So Luke tells us in this context that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Let me just pause there, hit the pause button, and give a little backstory. Some of you are familiar with this, some of you are not. You had Jews, Jesus, the disciples, they were Jewish. You had the Jews, and then you had the Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. Think cats and dogs. Right? They did not get along. And it was so bad that Jews and Samaritans would not eat off of a plate or a utensil that the other had used. It was that bad. When they were traveling, they would avoid each other's territory altogether. If a Jew was traveling to the northern part of Israel, they would bypass Samaria, go the long way around, and ultimately come up the other side so that they missed it. It would be like you saying, from Savannah. Okay, I've got to go to North Carolina. I don't know. What's the southernmost city? I used to drive that road all the time, 95. Let's just say Lumberton. I've got to go to Lumberton, North Carolina. But you know what? <clears throat> the South Carolinians live between us and them. And we don't travel. We Georgians, we don't travel through South Carolina. So I'm not going up 95 to get to Lumberton, North Carolina. No, 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 no. I'm going up through Macon and Atlanta, and I'm going to go up through Gatlinburg, and I'm going to loop around through the western part of North Carolina, and I'm going to come back down to Lumberton and take a whole day because the South Carolinians, for goodness sake, are between me and there. That's what we're dealing with. So Jesus sends some messengers to a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him. 
because he was traveling toward Jerusalem when his disciples, James and John, brothers, sons of thunder, saw this, they said, here comes the nickname, (laughs) here's why they got it, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? I mean, imagine Jesus like, that's a great idea. <laughs> I, was, I, I was hoping you would ask, you know. I don't know why they would ask this. Maybe they had seen enough of Jesus' work to where they knew he could do anything. Maybe they had participated enough. I mean, you think about the feeding of the 5,000 when that happened. The disciples had a part. They handed out the bread, and, you know, and it all just sort of multiplied right there. Maybe they felt like they had some power. They necessarily didn't, and some authority maybe they didn't. But for whatever reason, it's, it's John and his brother that said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you just let us, we're going to command fire down from heaven. We're just going to torch these people right here for what they've done. Jesus obviously is like, no. That's not, son of thunder, have a seat. Other son of thunder, B, number two, you have a seat as well. This is not what we're going to plan to do. Look look what it says. But he turned and he rebuked them and he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you're of. For the son of man, a reference to himself, didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Take that picture of John, son of thunder. The last disciple to die of the twelve. An old man on the island of Patmos, he's writing now the letter that we have in the Bible as 1 John. It's 50 years, give or take, since this experience that we just read of in Luke chapter 9. God makes a promise to his children that when he began a good work in us, he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's not a suggestion, that is a promise that he makes I believe, understanding if we're willing for him to do that in us. And so let's take a look now, 50 years further in John's life, and let's see what the promise did. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, John writes, The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. There is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And he he who does not love abides in death. Verse 16 through 18, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Right, That's the easy part to speak it, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Verse 19, we love because He first loved us. 
a man who could only be called a son of thunder, closes out his life writing a letter where the only thing he could talk about is a quality of unconditional love. A man who once wanted to torch people that he had an issue with, who now is speaking that the only way we really are truly seen as believers is by the love of God that's demonstrated through us. That he who began a good work in you, John, you're not there yet, is going to complete it, is going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So what area of your life do you tend to say, be stuck in this sin? I'm always going to be stuck in this bitterness. I'm never going to be able to forgive. I'm always going to be impatient. I'm never going to be fill in the blank. I'll never change. The question is, are you on the anvil? And are you letting the master craftsman do work that only he can do? Because he who started a good work in you, he's confident and he's promised. He's going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So are you surrendered? Do you know him? If you do, hey, take heart. He's not done with you yet. And if you don't know him, no better time than right now, today, to invite Jesus who died and rose to come in, forgive, and take over. And I promise you he'll do it. God, we thank you for the promises of your word. Lord, thank you that, um, that you give us what we need in life. Lord, maybe in these two services there have been select people that needed to be reminded that they are still a work in progress. Lord, we don't leverage this and abuse this as a license to just sin and do whatever we want and to run our own ship, Lord, as our lives, God. We don't treat grace that way, hopefully. But God, this is a great encouragement to remind us that in those moments where we feel like, you know what, I'm just always going to be stuck here. I'm never going to be any further like Jesus. I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to be whatever. God, what a great promise that you, the God who created and finished, who came and died and rose and counted your work finished, is the same God who would never give up on us or walk away from us, that if we let you are going to mold and shape our character and our qualities and our minds and our hearts and our behaviors and our lives to where maybe one day we can look back like John <laughs> from our own island <laughs> and say with praise and glory to you, man, what a work you've done in us. Lord, it starts with a relationship, maybe for those that are here today that have never given their lives to Christ. They're at a place where they're ready to say, I'm tired of my sin and I want it forgiven and done with. And and Lord, right where they sit, give them the courage, I pray, to ask you, Jesus, to forgive, to wipe the slate clean, that in repentance, the best they could, they would turn from it. And that they would trust, Jesus, that you will come and forgive and even invite you to do that. So thank you for what you'll do, for all that you promise us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together this morning as we sing.